0: Express your investment views and give yourself the freedom to go anywhere with S&P Dow Jones Indices. Search indexology on the web or hashtag indexology on Twitter and LinkedIn.
1: My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bone market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. people want to make friends, I'm just trying to make some money in my job. Not just to entertain, but to educate. Teach. So call me at one 800 743 cbc or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Has the stock market totally lost its mind? I mean, when President Trump imposes a 10% tariff on $200 billion worth of Chinese imports, and then China retaliates with tariffs on $60 billion of American exports, and our president effectively scuttles any low-level trade talks, you'd think stocks would go down, right? Wrong. Because the Dow roared 185 points today, S&P gained 0.54, and the Nasdaq fell to 0.76%. Ah. So is this pure craziness, people? Maybe somebody slipped some cannabis into the water supply on Wall Street? No. This move actually makes sense. And I'm going to tell you why so you're not confused, not going to give up, not going to walk away. First, while 10% might seem like a pretty steep tariff, until 6.30 p.m. last night, the buzz was that it would be 25%. That is why I was so concerned about it. what's the level, what's the level. In other words, compared to what many people were expecting, it was actually good news. 10% is a shot across the bow. 25% is a howitzer firing for effect at Beijing and Shanghai. The investors who are really worried about this trade war view President Trump as unrestrained in his attacks on China. Uh-uh, 10%, that's restrained. It gives our two countries plenty of time to talk. The one hitch is that if we don't reach some resolution with China by January, the tariffs will automatically go up to 25%. This gives them incentive to make a deal, don't you think? Now, I think the Chinese will come to the negotiating table, even as you had Jack Ma of Alibaba fame talking about how China can keep this up for the next 20 years. That's what they always said, 60 50, 2,000 years. But regardless of what happens going forward, what happened last night simply wasn't as bad as many investors were anticipating. So you actually had a reason to buy not 25, but 10. Hey, and how about this Chinese uh, stock market? I mean, it's been under tremendous pressure, right? Initially, it looked like it would be down at the opening, which sent our futures lower simultaneously. But at the time I woke up at 3 a.m., the Chinese market had come roaring back, plus 1.8%. Moved our futures up, too. Why? Pretty simple. There's a lot of chatter at the Communist Party. Worried about a trade war-induced economic slowdown is putting together a stimulus package, not to mention a plunge protection team to keep their stock market going down, but a stimulus package to keep uh, things moving while they try to preserve their stocks and get them to move up. Now, uh, China's going to get less investment from America. Their government needs to make up the difference. Of course, this was also good news for our companies that do lots of business over there. The ones with the most Chinese exposure and, yes, usual list, usual suspects, United Technologies, Caterpillar, Boeing, all on a great day. Boeing, fabulous. Which brings me to my third reason. These stocks are constantly being shorted by oh-so-clever hedge funds who keep assuming that they just have to, these stocks have to blow up, don't they? I need to point out that many of these fund managers are kind of paranoid. They see systemic risk all over the place where it doesn't exist. Every time a country in Europe or Asia struggles with its currency or its banking system or its finances, uh, we're talking Turkey, uh, Greece, uh, Cyprus, these guys decide it's an opportunity to short stocks because it's the end of the world that's near. Every new tariff begets another reason to bet against the market. Of course, every time they seem to get it wrong, yet the process keeps repeating itself, and they come on air and they really talk their game, by the way. In fact, it's become downright predictable. On day one, the hedge funds aggressively short their most hated stocks right into all this downturn. But then on day two, so few people are left to sell that the shorts end up losing, and they cover that short position, driving the stock ever higher. These professional bears don't seem to understand that we're in a new environment here. Not necessarily a better one, but it's a new one. And there's so much index fund money pouring into the market from 401ks and IRAs, from all these people, really, who who now have fabulous jobs, right? Because the tight labor market. And that money pushes stocks higher. And it's just kind of evergreen money. It keeps coming in. As long as these buyers are there, it's very hard for the short sellers to win. If you're going to short stocks, you need someone to panic so you can buy back your stock and buy it back at a lower level. That's just not happening. Every time the short sellers end up being overwhelmed by these index buyers, not to mention the big buybacks that always are in play – Fourth, today, there was so much positive Wall Street research that we had a rosy scenario right into the opening. Okay, why don't we just talk about Oracle for a second, all right? Last night, the software giant reported a quarter that was immediately pronounced weaker than expected. The headline writers pretty much declared that this thing was dead on arrival. Listen to this one. Quote, Oracle cloud sputters as CEO high-fives herself over earnings, end quote. Stock immediately fell two bucks in after-hours trading. It looked really ugly. But this morning, we got nary a downgrade. In fact, Oracle got some upgrades and price target bumps. We heard talk of a reacceleration of business. We got some chatter that the company's setting up for a good second half. The analyst praised Oracle for the steady increase in its cash flow and its strong buyback. If you didn't know any better, you'd think that last night's stories and this morning's research reports were about two totally different companies. Stock ended up pretty much unchanged. Spent a lot of time in the block. If you were short Oracle, you had to, you had to cover last night. Can you imagine? Fifth, Ang just refuses to die. ANG being my shortened acronym for Amazon, Netflix, and Google now, Alphabet. We just learned that Google's teamed up with Renault, Nissan, Mitsubishi, and an Alliance. Alliance provides its Android operating system as the basis for vehicle entertainment systems starting in 2021. Self-driving cars and infotainment systems are a potentially huge ecosystem for uh, uh for Google, which by the way, stock has been acting doggy of late until today. I want you to listen to how they're describing this thing. Quote: Vehicles sold by the Alliance members in many markets. Will utilize Android, the world's most popular operating system, and will provide turn-by-turn navigation with Google Maps, access to a rich ecosystem of automotive apps on the Google Play Store. Play Store, I'm sorry, and have the ability to answer calls and texts, control media, find information, and manage vehicle functions with voice using the built-in Google Assistant. Guys, that's a bunch of gobblegook. Saying, listen, this is a gigantic multi, yeah, maybe a billion-dollar market, maybe more. Meanwhile, we found out that Amazon is planning to release at least eight new voice-controlled hardware devices by year's end. Plus, Amazon's teamed up with Audi to install home charging systems for the new electric vehicles. Then there are the Emmys. Amazon won a bunch for uh, uh, one of the, uh, their comedies, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Oh, and Netflix raked in 23 Emmys for variety of programming, more than any other network except HBO. They're spending for high-quality content. It seems to be paying off. That's Aang. Facebook, BF, down another, down again, another number cut. What else is new? The final positive is Apple. Last night we left here thinking that the U.S. was going to slap tariffs on the company's accessories made in China. Nope, got an exemption. I cannot stress how important that is uh, because as Apple, be Apple will be able to keep doing what it's doing, making the best new phones with the best ecosystem. A trillion-dollar stock that gets crushed can really hammer this market, but the bull is unscathed. And while the stock closed up only slightly, it did roar for most of the day. So which of these factors was the most important driver of today's rally? Frankly, I'm going to default to number three. Okay, I think it's the short selling. It's become too darn difficult to short this market. When I was running my old hedge fund, I always had to have some shorts on and I'd often have huge bets against various sectors. It worked for me. It worked again during the financial crisis 10 years ago. However, because of the tidal wave of new money coming in and the incredibly large corporate buybacks, which have shrunk the number of shares outstanding, it's just not working right now. The shorts seem almost never to get a break. They don't get the kind of sell off they're hoping for. Instead, we got a rally that only, because, uh, only became stronger over the course of the session as the shorts realized once again, oh, man, it's not going our way. Let's just cover these shorts and move on. The bottom line, the glass all full gang. Just can't stop buying, and unless there's a specific piece of negative news, a real shortfall, this market simply isn't delivering the kind of declines that used to make being a short seller so darn lucrative. That's why stocks seem to be so resilient, and why the market keeps defying the odds. Can in New York? Can? Booyah, Kramer! My Booyah! Can?
2: What do you think? about my question is, what do you think about First Data Corporation, FDC? I've seen a few of their new Clover machines and small businesses around me. The CEO on CNBC yesterday sounded confident about being able to move into bigger retailers. The stock's up 50% in the past five months. Did I miss the boat on this, or is it still going to set up? No, down? it's
1: good. I listened to Frank yesterday. He was really positive. He's down on the floor, and I told him. It's Frank Bisignano, who's the CEO. It's a good story. Uh, Travel Trust left it too soon. Let's go to Marvin in New Jersey. Marvin. Boy Jim. This is Marvin from Jackson, New Jersey. Oh, Andrew Jackson. I've been there in a long time, but I do love it. There's down there just uh, as at uh, LBI last weekend, so I know the area well. What's up? Okay. Well, Macy's has announced they plan to hire 80,000 part-time employees for the holidays. I have Macy's with an average cost of $37. What is the, the short and long-term outlook for Macy's and the target price? Well look, I think Macy's is doing well. It's still an inexpensive stock. Jeff, you know, look, Jeff Gannett's doing a great job. It yields four point two five percent. I would average down and buy some at thirty-three thirty-four if it gets there, and then you get a better basis. That's my take. I think Macy's gonna have a good season. How about Fred in Ohio? Fred.
0: Hi, Jim. I'm sending you a happy booyah. Oh, I
1: love it. Thank uh, you so much. What's up?
0: I I own uh, shares of uh Fox a, okay. a, a potentially complex buyout transaction. The right. problem is that I don't know what dollar amount each share of Fox A will bring. So I don't know if I should buy sell now or No, no, wait you want to ring the register. You're not
1: an arbitrageur, sir. You don't want this thing to fall through and leave you. I'm I, mean, I do not think it's going to, but we preach not being an arbitrageur. Ask anyone who belongs to the ActionOrders club. We talk about this endlessly. This is like NXPI. Uh, when uh, Qualcomm was finally raised its bid, just move on. You don't need that. Uh, there's just pennies to be made, or well, very little to be made, and a lot that could go wrong. All right, is the market nuts? No, it's actually perfectly sane. It's just that the glass all full gang, all full gang, can't stop buying because of these reasons. Remember, I fingered number three as the reason why we have a kind of plunge protection of our own going here. On mail money tonight. Talk about reefer madness. I'm going to sit down with the CEO of one of the hottest stocks in the cannabis space. You've asked for it. We've got it Tilray, up over 600% since its IPO. But could the monster move continue? I'm going to take a deep dive also into one of the cloud kits. Tell you why it could be the best way to play big data. And the war on cash is in full swing and fintech companies are reaping the re- rewards. But could one of your popular favorites, Square SQ, continue to dominate? I've got the exclusive. So stay with Kramer. Man, the reefer rally just continues, <laughs> continues to go. It refuses to stop. Look at the incredible move in the cannabis cohort today. What happened? It's pretty simple. Tilray, T-L-R-Y, the big Canadian producer of medicinal marijuana, just got approval from the U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency to be the first company to supply weed for clinical trials here in America. The stock surged 29% on the news. What makes this even more impressive is the fact that Tilray's stock was already up more than 600% from the IPO price just a few months ago. Who says you can't make money in the stock market? You know what? I, I want to approach these red-hot ganja stocks, though, with a little bit of caution, because this kind of action makes it really difficult to stay on the sidelines. As far as the business goes, Tilray is in an enviable position. They were a major supplier of medicinal marijuana for research purposes outside of the U.S. Then when Canada decided to end pot prohibition, they started ramping up production to sell this stuff for recreational use, too. Now they're on track to nearly double their production to more than 140,000 kilos by the end of next year. One problem. Hate to chase stocks that have exploded without much, all that much revenue, and everything about this move is explosive. But I think it deserves a closer look. So let's dig deeper with Brendan Kennedy, it's the CEO of Tilray. Find out why the investors are so excited about his company and the amazing opportunity in front of it. Mr. Mr. Kennedy, welcome to Man Money. Great to have you, sir. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you, Brandon. Have me. a seat. All right, first of all, this is really good news because we know that the uh, only sanctioned place to be able to have pot until today was the uh, University of Mississippi. Do you think the DEA is loosening up restrictions for, because this is compassionate use stuff? I
2: think so. The, the DEA uh, started to loosen up restrictions back in August 2016, uh, and they said they were going to allow uh, sources of medical cannabis for research from other countries and other places. And uh, today proves that they were uh, willing to follow through with that statement. And so we couldn't be more thrilled to be able to export uh, medical cannabis products from Canada to the U.S. Uh, for this trial at the University of California. How San Diego. big only could medical be? I think, I think medical could be uh, somewhere around a $100 billion industry globally. Uh, if you look at, I've been doing this for eight years, right. right? And eight years ago, there were 15 countries in the world that had to medical cannabis. Today, there's about 35. It's really mm-hmm. clear to me how we get from 35 to 40 to 50 to 60 over the next, right. really over the next three or four years.
1: Sleeping, pain medication, obvious uh, for people who are uh, hospice. But at the same time, the drug industry is going to fight you tooth and nail, aren't they? Well, so we announced
2: an agreement with a division of Novartis called Sandoz. And that initial agreement was for Canada. It's a co-marketing, co-developing agreement. And we hope to extend that agreement to other countries around the world. And so if you look at large pharmaceutical companies, they have to hedge this. Cannabis is a substitute for prescription painkillers, prescription opioids. And so if you're an investor in a pharmaceutical company or you're a pharmaceutical company, you have to hedge the the offset
1: uh, from cannabis substitution. Okay, speaking of hedges, obviously... uh Constellation Brands. Uh, Rob Sands, probably the smartest man in beer in the world today, has a huge position in Canopy. Should you uh, not welcome the hedge of perhaps a, a Coca-Cola, a PepsiCo, a, a Nestle, someone who needs to be in this segment once things really get rolling? I think
2: all the alcohol, all the alcohol companies need to enter this right. industry. Uh, it's a great hedge for them, it, or whether you're an alcohol company or an investor in an alcohol company. This is a global opportunity our intent is to build a company that dominates part of this $150 billion industry. I think you'll see multiple $100 billion companies. We don't want to partner with ABI. We want to build ABI.
1: Okay, fair enough. But you have $14 billion market cap. If Today, you started $17 just a few months ago. Uh, it is a gigantic opportunity. And you talk about disrupting the whole industry. But uh, you've got far less cash than Canopy. They've got $5 billion. Isn't this the time to strike and raise capital? Which, by the way, there would be nothing wrong if you said, yes, we obviously need more capital?
2: We we obviously need more capital. (laughs) Yes, which we said in our perspectives. The prospectus, the intent is to to build a a global company. Uh, We're in 12 countries today on Mm -hmm. five continents. Uh, It's very clear that we'll add additional countries in the coming years. And so that requires us to increase our capacity substantially as we uh, introduce products such as these and medical
1: products around the world. Well, again, uh, is this not the time to strike when the iron is hot? I mean, your company now is larger than 93 uh, companies in the S&P 500, including well-known names like Macy's and Ralph Lauren. And there is a great opportunity for you to raise money. Bruce raised money uh, for Canopy. You've got the public markets would certainly welcome equity.
2: Definitely, and, and we're constantly evaluating okay. new sources of capital. I think if you're, a, if you're an investor looking for growth, are you going to invest in Macy's or a, a global
1: cannabis company? But Brian Alfide, who's the CEO of Green Organ- Organic Dutchman, when I interviewed him at the Green Market Report conference on Friday, he's a P&G executive for 25 years. He told me I should—me! I should rein in my enthusiasm about what will happen in Canada on October 17th, because the repeal of cannabis prohibition will not be as dramatic. He's saying it could take a couple of years before things really ramp up. How do you feel? Uh, So, so medically, we'll go from
2: 35 to 40, 50, 60 countries. There's clear, there's a clear global growth opportunity when it comes to medical cannabis. With, with Canada, we're we're about to see 100% growth. One country Uruguay to two countries Canada. What, what intrigues me is country three, four, five, and six, which are coming, right? I I think you'll see the third country within 12 months of October. And that's, That's where the real opportunity is. It's not about Canada. It's about all the countries that follow. So
1: then therefore you're not concerned. You know that all the the addition in cannabis, when we saw it happen in Oregon, prices went through the floor. It's the cheapest in America. You're not concerned that with all of the different supply coming on, that you could have a considerable collapse even in Canadian prices.
2: No, it's like valuing ABI on the price of wheat, right? Cannabis is raw material. It's, it's, It's an ingredient that we use in these branded products. You're not going to see the commoditization of the finished product right. in, the, in the brands. You'll see, you'll see price segmentation, value brands, premium brands, but you won't see commoditization of, of the brands across
1: the spectrum. Which are going to be, the, would it be, al- do you think it's going to be alcohol? Do you think it's going to be tea? Do you think it's going to be coffee, uh, edibles? What are the pecking order that you see once we get into a more recreational world? I think that, um, I,
2: think, I think more about um, effect, and time to onset, right? Whatever the delivery factor is, oh, form mean, factor, okay, right? Okay. But if you can match, if you can match a, a beer, where if you and I have a beer, we might feel it within 12 to 15 minutes, okay. that's the important part. No one wants to drink a glass of Chardonnay and feel it an hour and a half later. Right, so you need to increase the time to onset, and that's where we're spending all of our uh, R&D time.
1: Well, I want to congratulate you on the success uh, of your company. I also want to caution people that, you know, you need more money, and whether it's a partnership or whether it's equity offering, it certainly wouldn't be a bad idea. It's an expensive proposition to be as big a consumer products company as you'd like to be. It is, but we're thrilled. Okay. That's Brandon, Brandon Kennedy. And, Brandon Kennedy, I've got to tell you, this is the hottest stock in the market right now. And uh, you just heard Brandon talk about they do need money. I'm just trying to be cautious, okay? He's the CEO of Tilray. What a run. They have money's back in the break. weeks now I've been telling you that September tends to be an odd month. Even on days like today when the averages run, you often see major pullbacks in some of the market's biggest winners. Why? Because this is the time of year when money managers like to take profits in their best performers. If your fund is up a lot, it's tempting to simply ring the register and coast through the rest of the year. And that attitude tends to create opportunities. Thanks to the mechanics of the money management business, you can get some amazing gifts here. So a couple of weeks ago, I said you need to be prepared to buy some of the, our favorite growth stocks into weakness. Specifically, I told you to watch out for any weakness in the cloud kings because the cloud is the hottest secular growth trend in the world. Well, guess what? We've gotten exactly the kind of pullback in Splunk, the analytics play that helps businesses get the most out of their data. Two weeks ago, this cloud king was trading at 128. Now it's at 116. As far as I'm concerned, that makes the stock a lot more attractive. Bye, bye, bye. It's not as though anything has really changed here. Splunk reported an amazing quarter last month which caused the stock to vault into the stratosphere. Now people are ringing the register and I think the sellers are giving you a chance to do, well, to get in at an incredible Incredible company at a, a really what I think is pretty much a decent discount. Why am I so confident about Splunk? All right, I'm tell you what. But we need to start by explaining what this company actually does, because I think a lot of people get confused. Like, what does this Splunk mean? Is it cave mining, whatever? Well, Splunk is a play on big data. According to the analyst who covers it for Jeffries, Splunk is the best play on big data there is. The business of taking huge quantities of digital information and then mining it, Splunk, for insights about everything under the sun. But there are a lot of companies that make analytic software. So what sets Splunk apart? Why did I name this one a cloud Okay, the vast majority of data out there is what's known as unstructured data, meaning it's not really organized, and it's not the kind of thing you can easily plug into an Excel spreadsheet. A lot of this unstructured stuff is what's known as machine data, which is a catch-all term that includes all of the information generated by the systems running in data centers and by the devices that are part of the Internet of Things, IoT For a long time, this machine data was viewed as little more than junk, in part because you've got thousands of distinct machine data formats, very hard, very hard to compile. Then Splunk comes along with a software platform that takes all this machine data and renders it accessible to their clients. You can use it to diagnose service problems or detect security threats or catch fraud or get a better read on what your customers really want. And Splunk gives you these insights in a format that's easy for anybody to understand, not just a comp sci major. Basically, they turn junk data into a digital treasure trove. That's the long-term story. But after generating a lot of excitement in the first couple of years after it came public in 2012, Splunk got crushed with the rest of the cloud cohort in 2014. The stock pretty much traded sideways from 2015 through late last year. Why? Well, a lot of it had to do with the company made a business model shift. It shifted to a a software-as-a-service model, okay? As recently as the summer of last year, you had a bunch of analysts fretting that Splunk was botching the transition. And that it would cannibalize their existing business and that, and that all of this would result in slower billings growth. But I believed in this transition, which is why I've been recommending the stock since it was trading in the 50s and 60s last year. Remember, this is the same thing that we saw with Adobe and Autodesk when they shifted from an old-fashioned on-premise software model to a cloud-based software as a service model. There were some speed bumps along the way, but sooner or later, that move pays off because embracing the cloud is just a better business model. Of course, if you started on the cloud like Salesforce, then you wouldn't even have to worry about the transition. Sure enough, late last year, Splunk started reporting some extremely positive numbers. And the stock was off to the races. There was a little blip in March where investors were concerned about the company's long-term revenue growth, but these... Their guidance seemed a little tepid, but those fears were put to rest the next time Splunk reported. Then in late June, the stock got hit with a major decline. It went from 119 down to 96. Now, this had nothing to do with the fundamentals, everything to do with a broader sell-off in the fast-growing tech stocks. Plus, Splunk got hit with a really ugly downgrade from Citi, which talked about the company's growth drivers plateauing thanks to increased competition. But once again, when Splunk reported in late August, they shot the lights out. They delivered a three cent earnings beat off a five cent basis, higher than expected revenue, rising 39% year over year. Billings grew with 35% clip, and the free cash flow more than doubled up 138%. Get this, the software revenue up 42%. Even better, management gave bullish guidance for the next quarter, and they raised their full year revenue forecast. As CEO Doug Martin, who's been on the show a bunch of times, explained on a conference call if you don't know your data, you don't know your business. I like that. In a world where everybody's going digital, enterprises need a company like Splunk to help them get answers from their data without needing to know the right questions to ask beforehand. The quarter was so fabulous that it sent the stock flying from 107 to 123. Meanwhile, the analysts seemed to fall in love with Splunk overnight, raising their estimates and price targets practically across the board. But there was one analyst whose reaction really stood out to me, and that's John DeFucci at Jeffries. He called Splunk, and I'm quoting here, the best way to play the big data theme. End quote. His reason, His long-term thesis is very similar to what I already outlined. Spunk is the king of helping companies get the most out of their unstructured data. On top of that, it's clear that Spunk's transition to a subscription-based business model is going even better than expected. Going into this quarter, management had been predicting that they'd soon get 65% of their bookings from renewable software, with that number rising to 75% by their 2020 fiscal year. But in this latest quarter, renewable software already makes up 72% of the total. Most importantly, though, DeFucci points out that Splunk's embrace of the cloud makes it difficult to get your head around how the business is really going. This is something we've seen from both Adobe and for Autodesk, too. Charging a big licensing fee for software up front is a very different business than charging a smaller recurring fee for software month after month after month, year after year after year. And that's why DeFucci thinks that Spunk is constantly being underestimated. I agree with him. So you look, you look at the billings up 35%. That's a very strong number, up from 20% in the previous quarter. But DeFucci says this understates the company's strength because cloud billings are inherently superior to old-school software-licensed billings. When you sign up new cloud business, the billings only show the first installment of multi-year contracts. That's the way accounting works. Given that Splunk now gets the bulk of its business from the cloud, he's arguing that the company's actual new business probably increased by a lot more than 35%. I think that's a very compelling argument. It's one reason I really like the stock here. Here's the bottom line. When software companies like Splunk embrace a software-as-a-service business model, Wall Street tends to underestimate them because people look at the wrong metrics. Remember that piece I did about how I wasn't looking right about Autodesk? The recent pullback has given you a terrific buying opportunity because I bet Spunk has more room to run after a quarter that both explains and cries out for a higher valuation.
0: John in New York, John. Hi, Jim. Uh, great big bull yard to you and your Action
1: Alerts plus staff. Ah, you're kind. Thank you so much for joining the club. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Uh, my question is about Dropbox, symbol DBX. I bought, sold, and now bought again. Uh, currently, my basis is $30 for Dropbox. It's currently selling around 26 I was wondering if I should... Increase my stake at this price or plan an exit strategy?
1: Look, I know this is all because people feel that Microsoft has developed a Dropbox killer. I don't think it's going to kill Dropbox. Look, it's not turned out to be like a Roku, but I don't think you should cut and run. Uh, I do think that, that Microsoft, the competition is overstated at this point. I really believe that. Bill in Pennsylvania. Bill.
0: Hey, Jim. Hey, Bill. First of all, I want to thank you for Canopy Growth. No the problem, that, Thank, but thank God, uh, Rob Sands. You Sanders. first mentioned it on your show. Thank you. We already have a double in it.
1: Yeah, I'm sitting down with them uh, uh, at a conference uh, next month. I, I think that they're doing a great job. What's up?
0: My question tonight, though, is about Trade Desk, TTD. <laughs> I have been waiting for a pullback, but over the last few months, it has gone up over 50 points, and it now has a P.E. over 100 and a peg ratio over 5. Is it too late to get in?
1: I'll have to tell you, let me give you the mindset of mad money. At, at 100, after that last quarter, I said I was going to do a piece. I didn't get in ahead of the last quarter. I was going to do a piece recommending a stock. I felt that after that last quarter, I missed it, and then it went up another 40 points. Uh, Roku, Trade Desk, these are two that I underestimated their power. Uh, I do think Trade Desk is a great company. I can tell you that. But I am not the call. I thought it had gotten too high. I was wrong. All right. Thanks to the mechanics of the money management business, you are giving an amazing gift here in Splunk. I think it's the best way to play big data. Stocks got more room to run. Big data is just all-encompassing Internet of Things issue. Much more mad money, including my exclusive, with Square, SQ. This company's up 150% year-to-date. But could the company continue to pay? Then last night, Donald Trump ramped up the trade war with the biggest wave of tariffs yet. And China's already firing, firing back. But which country has more to lose? I'm giving you my take. Not surprise you. The lawyer calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. The financial technology stocks have seemed practically unstoppable. And the hottest stock in this Red Hot Coop, it's Square, SQ, the payment technology company that can turn any smartphone or tablet into a credit card reader with a stock that's up more than 150% for the year. 150. You heard it. The source of the strength, not only has Square been taking share and taking names in the payment space, they've used their position to become a major small business lender via their Square Capital Division. Given that they actually handle their clients' receipts, being they know exactly how much money potential borrowers maybe are making, well, Square has a real edge in the competition. Companies also got a very popular peer-to-peer payments business, Square Cash. Over 7 million users. Phenomenal growth. That's why Square was able to deliver a terrific quarter when it reported in August, and it's why I remain a fan of the stock. But after this kind of movie, look, we gotta be, we'd got be crazy if we didn't kick the tires, make sure the story's still intact. In so, let's check in with Sarah Fryer. She's Square's fabulous chief financial officer who's in town for Recode's Code commerce event today. Get a better sense of where her company's headed. Ms. Fryer, welcome back to Mad Money. Good to <laughs> see you, Sarah. Have a great seat. to see you. All right, I've got to tell you, Sarah, I've got a lot of companies I follow that have good revenue growth, but a 36 billion dollar company with 60% growth is the single fastest grower in my universe. How are you able to do that?
3: Yeah, and we've accelerated five quarters in a row. I'll I'll just add that in. Um, It comes back to staying focused on what we do. So first thing we looked at this year, Omnichannel. So make sure we're there every time a seller needs to make a sale, whether they're offline, online, in a marketplace, wherever they are, don't let them miss that Mm. sale. Second thing has been continuing to grow our financial services. Uh, portfolio. So cash app, as you mentioned, 7 million monthly actives. Uh, Capital, uh, where we facilitate lending. And then payroll, a very young business for us that we would put under that financial services heading. And then finally, international. Um, Everything we see here in the U.S. resonates when we go out around the world. Today we're in Canada, Japan, Australia, UK. And lots of work to do to keep growing those countries.
1: When I go and I, I because I own a restaurant, and open another. I always ask people, which What do you use? What do you use, and why? I hear the same thing over and over again. Easy to use. That's why I go with Square. What's so easy about it?
3: So we built it from the beginning to be very uh, what we call elegant. So actually not simple because we wanted it to feel like it was self-serve. You don't need uh, someone to call you up. You don't need someone to come into your establishment to tell you how to use it. Uh, We wanted it to be fast. So whether it's fast to take the actual transaction, so seconds on our newest piece of hardware, or whether it's fast to get your money. You can get your money next day, which is kind of wowing for the industry. We sped it up to instant. So you can actually get an instant deposit if you need it to manage your working capital. And then finally, uh, in order to build that remarkable product, uh, we also uh, went after resilient. We want to make sure it's always up, that we're right. always there for you.
1: Now, uh, Jack, Jack Dorsey, she's the CEO, mentioned this time is the first time we really played it up in all the calls. Caviar. Now, full disclosure, we use cav- caviars are, Thank uh, you. <laughs> uh, you. In Bar San Miguel. But this thing has turned into a gigantic business, hasn't it? Mm-hmm.
3: Well, Caviar is one piece of the portfolio. Right. Um, it's definitely doing well. Grew 100% year over year. Caviar, our strategy there is to be a food ordering platform. So it's different from the delivery companies. Right. Um, what we're trying to make sure is that when omnichannel is happening to a food business, mm-hmm. and I say that broadly, so someone might walk into your restaurant, into Bar San Miguel to eat. They may want to uh, line up in your restaurant at lunchtime to order their sandwich, but they might also sit on their sofa and just order a delivery. I like that on Friday night. Um, Or they might order a pickup, because they're racing to work and they want to pick up their coffee on the go. And what we want to make sure with Caviar and with the broader Square platform, so as we integrate it Mm -hmm. into things like Square for Restaurants, that a restaurant can now fully serve their customer regardless of where the customer shows up.
1: Okay, I think that some people might be confused $36 billion valuation, they're trying to look at it and say earnings per share. I look at you as both a subscription business, but more important, you're an ecosystem that really does encompass everybody, including Apple Bay. You don't have any natural predator competitors. It's really just you're trying to do 360 for small business.
3: Yeah, so that's exactly right. It's all about the cohesiveness of the ecosystem. And when we're able to pull it together in a seamless way, we can take data, for example, and payment processing, as you pointed out in your intro. We know the data of your business, so with that, we're able to do things like underwrite you for Square Capital to facilitate a loan. Um, Elsewhere in the system, we can take something like time cards, so where someone's clocking in and clocking out, and then we can automate the payroll. So everything we do is about how do we save that business time? Um, And you're right, no one else has pulled it all together. Others talk about integrated this and integrated that, but there's no integration if it's actually built seamlessly from the get-go.
1: We've been big fans of Etsy, another big winner, and one of the reasons why we have been is because we are huge fans of empowering small business, empowering people to have their own businesses. When you go to a flea market, when you go to someone who's trying to make ends meet but has got a craft, Mm -hmm. I always see the square. That's another part of what you're doing, is empowerment, right?
3: Yeah, so from the beginning, so up on the wall in our office, it says economic empowerment, and it's at the soul of anyone we hire. You have to believe that that's why you're here. Um, And it was about really unfolding Greenfield. So in the beginning, 50% of small businesses, or 21 million small businesses in the US, don't accept cards today, which means they miss out on the sale, right? I'm at the farmer's market and I wanna buy the more expensive item. I might not have the cash in my pocket. But of course it's grown from there. So today over 50% of the businesses on Square are now what we'd consider larger. So they do more than $125,000. So they're out of the farmers market. They've probably got a bricks and mortar. Maybe they're just starting online and actually have a large online business. Um and our goal is to make sure you never grow out of us. That our our products keep getting more sophisticated and more specific to the business that you're building.
1: You should, when we first met, I was suspicious, critical. I was worried about the loans. You've made 500,000 loans. Your rate of default is far better, even though you're empowering even the tiniest of businesses.
3: Yeah, so you're right, so 500,000 loans, we've done over 3 billion of total loans facilitated. And we've done that with a default rate of around 4%. And so why? Um, it's really comes down to the data that we collect from payments. So as you pointed out, we're able to understand what's going across your countertop. Right. And so we're underwriting you in advance. And it's great for businesses because they actually get something in their dashboard that says, hey, we have a loan right here ready for you. Ready and with finish. one click, it's in your bank account the next day. Of course, we're taking capital a little bit more broadly, so we're starting to do partnerships. We just announced a partnership with eBay about six weeks ago, classic small businesses on the other side who have all that same data that we can use to also facilitate a loan there. And then finally, we're starting to do some more experimentation around consumer installments. So again, from a seller perspective, it's how do I make sure that if I'm selling maybe a higher ticket item, like a bridal dress, for example. Um, that I could offer my consumer financing so that she can still make the purchase in a safe, sound way. And we feel like we have a lot of data because we sit at that nexus of the buyer and the well, that's seller. That's
1: why the business model is so fabulous. It works the well. total addressable market is far bigger than anybody else. That's Sarah Fryer, CFO of Square. What a stock, but you've just heard why. The total addressable market opportunity is the way you look at the stock. That money's back into the break. And then the light rounds over. Are you ready, ski? Daddy? the light I'm starting
0: with Jay
1: in Minnesota. Jay.
0: Hi, Dr. Kramer.
1: Jay, what's up?
0: Thank you for taking my call. I am hoping to get your opinion on Biogen with their current research on Alzheimer's drug.
1: I think there are a lot of ways to win, and I think that so far, I mean, look, I didn't like the hype involving their uh, their Alzheimer's drug. I do prefer Regeneron, and then I think that Amgen is better. My travel trust, you follow along at AxeWordsPlus.com, owns Amgen. It's been a winner. Let's go to Brandon in Florida. Brandon. Booyah, Jim. Booyah. I love you, man. I've been watching you from day one, and I enjoy every moment of it. God bless. Oh, thank you. You're the best. Thank you very much. I have... Thank you. I have a question about the Liberty Oil Field. This company seems to be farting on all cylinders, but the market doesn't seem like they're giving them a credit. So what is the deal? Well, I mean, it's you know, know fracking. Hey, look, oil service has been a very tough business. I actually would ring the register here because there are others that are down so low that I think they're much better buys. I need to go to Don in Alabama. Don! Hey, Jim. How are you? I'm um, good. How about you, Don? Good,
0: good look, Jim, with the uh, holidays coming up and uh, a P.E. ratio of about 12, I would like to get your take on Spirit Airlines.
1: Okay, I prefer Delta more than Spirit. I prefer uh, United Continental more than Spirit and Love, uh, that's the symbol for Southwest Air, remains my favorite. Let's go to J.R. in California. J.R. Hey, Jim. Hi, what's going on? Hey, uh, big fan of the show. Uh, 19-year-old college student here all the way from USC. Okay. Uh, My question was about uh, Chef's Warehouse,
2: B-H-E-S. They put up Uh, an amazing quarter.
1: It was an amazing quarter, even better than Sprouts. I understand why people want to buy it. I think it's a little too hot for me, but it was a great quarter. Let's go to John in Washington to see John.
2: Hey, Jim, thanks for taking my call. Hey, my question to you is, um, my interest is in Under Armour. Yeah, I know it broke down down
1: last week. I tried to make, I made as many calls as I could. I could not find the reason why it broke down. I do prefer Nike here. I think Nike's going to have a good quarter. Remember that we did the big piece yesterday on Vans, which is owned by VF. VF may be the best shoe company people aren't thinking about. Stefan in North Carolina. Stefan.
0: Hi, Jim. Booyah. Booyah. Uh... I got a question for you about GameStop. I've seen it lately. It's been kind of on the rebound, and I know they have a lot of competition from digital media. Is this rebound
1: a sign of strength, or is there actually something Okay, to it? there is a lot of chatter that's, that it's going to be taken over. I cannot recommend a stock on a takeover basis where the fundamentals are in decline, and that's the case with GameStop. Let's go to Bob in New Jersey. Bob. Booyah, Jim. Booyah, Thank you for Bob. taking my call. You're quite uh, welcome. I'm interested in the entertainment field. Uh, how about Caesars? Yeah, you know I don't like that balance sheet. And if there's no balance sheet for me to like, then I cannot recommend the stock. Linda in New Jersey, Linda. Hi, Jim. Booyah. Uh, hey, Linda. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Listen, I wanted to get your thoughts on
0: Delique Holdings symbol DK. I
1: like the refiners. That's not necessarily my favorite. I like Marathon, but that's a good one. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round.
0: The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Who
1: has more to lose? People keep asking this question about the trade war with China as though we don't really already know the answer, but we do. The Chinese have more to lose. How do I know that? Because the American economy is fundamentally based on consumer spending, while the Chinese economy is fundamentally based on manufacturing. We buy lots of stuff from China. But with these new tariffs, it's easy enough for our companies to start making the same merchandise in other countries. Heck, Vietnam, Cambodia, Thailand, even Mexico are already less expensive places to do your manufacturing than China, even without the tariffs. There are plenty of countries that would love to make cheap stuff for the U.S. But what happens when American companies stop building factories in China? Well, that's not very good for their economy. So how come nobody seems to acknowledge the reality that China has more to lose? I think part of it's ideological. Many of the pundits you see opining on this issue really just. President Trump. Part of it's structural. They look at China in an authoritarian state that doesn't have to worry about elections, and they assume the Communist Party is in a better bargaining position than President Trump, especially with the Republicans looking poised to do badly in the upcoming midterms. But these so-called experts totally misunderstand what's going on here. Haven't these people noticed that Trump has no regard for any of the usual niceties of the American political process? I think he's not listening to anybody except a close-knit group of advisors who truly hate China more than any other country on Earth. Then, of course, the actual numbers. Chinese exports to the U.S. are more than three times the size of U.S. Exports to China, three times the size. They literally have more to lose, hundreds of billion dollars more. It's just a it's arithmetic. Their levers mostly consist of blocking American companies from doing more business in the People's Republic. Believe me, President Trump doesn't mind if our companies do less business in China. He's probably happy about it. He doesn't care about their earnings per share. He's not captured by our businesses that want to make more money in China. I find that refreshing. And one more thing. The American companies that were doing big business in China are still doing it. New companies know not to go there if they can avoid it now. With employment strong, with consumers having the best balance sheets perhaps ever, something I've heard from many of the banks I deal with, and with businesses flushed with cash from lower taxes here, it's easy to avoid China. And look, they can't really hurt us without hurting themselves. Our companies that sell stuff in China also tend to be big job creators in China. Now, I do wish our government was being more clever in its approach to the trade war. I can't imagine why the president led ZTE, the big Chinese telecom company, off the hook for its many transgressions without extracting anything from China in return, like, say, their approval of the Qualcomm NXP semi-deal. I don't know why he still allows Chinese companies to raise endless amounts of capital here. China is more capital constrained than most of the pundits realize. They need access to our financial markets and our consumer markets. So why not do what the Chinese say and say, hey, listen, if you're going to come public here, you need to have an American joint venture partner that gets 49% of your profits. <laughs> I mean, why the heck not? They need our capital markets, not the other way around. We don't raise money there. At the end of the day, the United States has the leverage. China does it. It's really that simple. You just never hear about it because most of the people on Wall Street are so convinced of laissez-faire orthodoxy that they can't imagine a world where trade war ends up being a good thing. But guess what? That may be exactly the world we're living in. Stick with Kramer. Let's talk till rate for a few seconds. Remember, I said that they should raise money in the prospectus. They said that they need more money. So if you're buying right here, maybe you ought to wait to see if they do some sort of offering. You'll get a better price. I just don't want anyone to get hurt in a thesis that I do agree with. Like I said, there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise you I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I'll see you tomorrow.
2: I want people to feel like they just learned something.